How's it going, everybody? This is Andy McCullough from The Athletic here with Mark Carrig. Also from The Athletic, you are listening to Beyond the Scrum. Mark, how's it going? Good, Andy. How are you? You know, Mark, I'm great. I'm just really? great. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, why not? Let's go with that. That's interesting. You're not often great. Well, you know, Mark, as we've talked about, I'm trying to really turn a new leaf and uh, be positive Andy. Okay. Is that what explains the R.A. Dickey headband that you've busted out again this week? Uh, no, Mark. So, uh, as you know, we are uh, in a pandemic, and uh, I have not gotten my hair cut since January. Uh, I am aware that there are relatively safe ways to do this, but I am choosing not to, and so I wear a bandana to hold back my hair and prevent it from getting in my eyes. It looks lovely, by the way. Thank you. You're pulling Thank it you. off very well. Thank you. Thank you. And you know what else will be lovely is if you could subscribe to the pod if you haven't already and give us a five-star review. We'd really, really appreciate it. Hey, we got a fun episode today. We don't want to banter for too long because we have a cool interview with our uh, our friend, our colleague, uh, really our, our lodestar as a... Uh, culture i hate that word (laughs) oh my god do i hate that word that that's one of the like i'm a pretentious sports writer words that people work in just to let you know hey i've looked at a dictionary and you haven't you know what i like uh the phrase uh bolster the bullpen Mm. you know Mm. the the arrival of greg holland Uh, will bolster bolster the royals bullpen oh shit man i've used that a lot I'm sure I have. Ooh. I'm terrified to. I don't yeah. think I've used yeah. Lodestar, but but bolstered the bullpen. Do you have Do you have certain words that you use like that you overuse? Oh man, uh, I don't know if it's words more constructions. Yet, comma. However, comma. yeah, that's bad. Stop doing that. I do that get a lot. Rid the, get rid of the comma after yet. Yeah, it's. I just shouldn't even use yet. A lot of times, it's not even necessary to be honest. So. Um, yeah, man. Like I think every writer does, right? Where you have these signatures that you don't even think about, and then what happens, at least on deadline, is that when you you don't have time to think, yeah, right. Like it's so you're taught don't use cliches because that's the that's the first crutch. Okay, is the cliche. Crutch number two is these constructions that you know will work. And therefore, you go to them, and you want to tell yourself under the gun, well, you'll go back and take him out. And, 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 but a lot of times, you, you can't. There isn't the time to do it. And so it ends up, you know, at least you know, when I, at the paper when I was writing a deadline, right? So a um, little easier to deal with that, you know, doing it here. But still, it, it creeps in. So it's less words and more just these, like, boring-ass constructions that I wish I could break myself out of. Sure, sure. One one you know peril of like writing on deadline is uh you know sometimes your brain is like a you know it's like a jet engine you just pick up stuff like as you go along and i'd be writing and i'd like read my story the next day and be like wow that was a great phrase and then i'd be like oh wait did kilgore write that two weeks ago <laughs> <laughs> and you look it up and you're like oh no like what yeah. have i done <laughs> yeah. yeah like yeah. oh man what a what a great turn of phrase i had there oh no wait yeah that was from a shining story okay no, i've i've definitely done that yeah definitely you know like i've heard vin scully describe something uh-huh. and then like a month later you know like basically do a shittier bastardized version of it and then look back <laughs> at it in horror and just like oh, no what'd you do what'd you do like i mean you know all like, because worse... you had the all because you couldn't sleep one night and you had the dodgers game yeah on in the background. Well, yeah like i mean what i would do oftentimes like you cover a game here right and then you put it on your phone and stream it through the speakers and so you know got a lot of vin scully back in the day driving back from city field so yeah man just like you said it just sort of like a jet engine it yeah. kind of picks up these things you don't think about and then spits them out after a while and you're just like oh no yeah what have i done I, I knew i'd made it in this business when one time kilgore did that to me he took something i had written and it ended up in one of his stories a few weeks later i was like i've done it like i i, I mean something in this business uh, oh boy all right uh let's get to our interview we have evan drellick who just did a real big story on rob manfred we will be right back with that interview in a moment so we are here with our first ever returning guest to be on the scrum they're calling him the studs turkle of baseball writing mostly because no one really knew what studs turkle was writing about anyway 
He hasn't seen a baseball game in three years. His name's Evan Drellick. Evan, I didn't know you? I was the first one to have a return appearance. It's kind of an honor, Andy. Yeah, two-time champion. Well-deserved, if I do say so. I think there's a lot of comps out there for Evan. Studs Terkel probably wasn't going to be near my, my top of those comps. Do you know, do you know who yeah, Studs Terkel is, Evan? I'm, like, honestly, that's a pretty deep uh, cut yeah, that Andy... I have like a vague, vague conception. <laughs> as I do with most most things in this world. Yeah. It's like reading your work. We all, it has a vague similarity to the English 6,000 words right. wasn't enough for you and that's a, that's fair. I, I, can, <laughs> I can appreciate that. <laughs> that's just that's a lead for me, baby. Right. Hey, uh, so Evan did a uh, really interesting story this week that he'd been working on for a little while about uh, the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred, and it was really kind of about it was about a lot of things, but the general theme was just about his his leadership his stewardship of the sport over the past few years and i'm just curious like evan what what was the genesis of this sort of idea and what did you kind of take away from the project so even before the astros punishment came down and even before the pandemic this is back in november and december Emma Spann, our, our dear editor, and I, and I, and I guess Ken, there'd been, there'd been a thought that, you know, this would be a reasonable time to evaluate Manfred, just because he seemed to be arriving at a series of moments, kind of capital M moments, and then it only grew from there. So the impetus to write it kind of kept growing, and I had a draft of the story actually back in December that was well shorter and, and ultimately well different than what it ended up being but let, let, before i get, get to the takeaway can i let me first explain why this was a very difficult story to do one the, the objective was to be more comprehensive than anybody has been on manfred i think that was achieved but what it is not ultimately is truly and entirely comprehensive um we settled on a story that ended up being 6200 words arguably not arguably, to write about Manfred, you you would probably need book length. You could easily do double. So the difficult thing is you have all these different tracks that you're pursuing. Diversity was in there. Minor leagues was in there. Labor was in there. Minor league wages was not in there. The juice ball was only briefly mentioned in there. So you're inherently limited in, in what you are pursuing and the extent to which you pursue it. And, and, even within that framework of 6,200 words, did I use every word uh, as best I could? Uh, did, did I explore every issue to the extent I should? It, 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 it's writing about a political figure, right? And, and, and there are so many different tracks to follow. Uh, that was the, that's what was, has been on my mind for a while. And I just, I wanted to kind of touch on that at the, at the start. Evan, you sat with Manfred for 35 minutes. Could you just describe that interaction? How does he present himself? Is it a comfortable conversation? Is it not? Like, what, what was that like? It's always slightly uncomfortable because you know at this point that he does have the ability and is often, uh, often seems to be easily irked, right? So you kind of know going into it that you're liable <laughs> to say something that uh, he, you know, he, he might cause him to kind of not fully fly off the handle, but that he won't like. And obviously, as a reporter, we, we encounter this with some frequency. So it, it, it's not an unknown situation. But you know going into talks with him that that's who he is and, and, and how he can be. I, I, the interview itself, he actually, I, I thought, w elaborated relatively well on, on some things. It's not to say every answer was satisfying. I'm sure there's some people who read it and said none mm -hmm. of these answers are satisfying. The only answer he the only question he did not answer was one about Jim Crane's repeated criticism of the Astros report, which had a, a rebuke of the Astros culture and uh, was basically an example of, of an, a sitting owner saying the commissioner is wrong. Every time Crane comes out here and says, no, there was nothing wrong with our culture. That was the only thing Manfred did not end up answering. So, yeah, just because you know how he can be, it, it, it's, it, it's, not, it's not the breeziest of interviews to prepare for. But also, again, it goes back to 
what do you ask? If you know you're not going to get two hours with him, and I had asked for roughly a half, an hour, a half hour, and I ended up getting it, are you hitting on all the right questions? And so I tried, um, but there's always more you can ask, and there's always more follow-ups, and, and there were follow-ups that I would have asked uh, if, if I had more time or, or a second interview. What, what answers did he provide that maybe you did not expect? I knew that his that he had been bothered by that perception about his love for the game. At the point at which I interviewed him, he had not talked about it publicly. He did an interview after speaking with me with Bill Shaken of the LA Times where that subject came up, not quite as in-depth, but to hear, to hear him talk about that perception, to hear the what essentially amounts to an apology or at least a mea culpa on the labor fighting that you had this summer between the union and the league, those were the two parts that jumped out um, and ended up being f- featured relatively high up in the story. But you know, we, we, we touched on, on a lot of things. I'm trying to think if there was something else that right away struck me, but th- that, that was off the top of my head. That, was, that seemed to be the most revelatory, if anything was indeed revelatory. And I think it was to some extent. It, it is pretty clear you talked about, you know, being irked. It seems from your story it comes across that he very much does not care for the perception that he uh, dislikes baseball. And I think that's a reductive sort of, uh, you know, way of framing it. Like, clearly he has an affinity for baseball. He's made his, you know, career in the field. But where do you think that perception stems from? I mean, does it stem from his actions as commissioner or is it sort of you know like a a made-up twitter thing a made-up social media well, and this thing. is what i think the story does somewhat successfully achieve so even if allowing f- i like how proud you are <laughs> no i'm not well i think I, I started off by telling you my insecurity about the story i, it, <laughs> I know i know i just i just like <laughs> you're like this was an equation that i somewhat no, I, I i don't think i did yeah some somewhat is the answer because <laughs> you can't solve Go. it you're, you, there's just too much going on to say mm-hmm. uh-huh i solved mm-hmm. it but every issue that exists yeah. so so take one that was not in the story which is minor league wages all of that i think can be folded back into this overarching umbrella of a question of what interest does he actually prioritize does he care about the broader good of the game however you want to qualify that or is he pursuing the good of the owners? So that question of love, what, what I tried to do early on is unpack it a bit. Because I, I, I did ask him, this was one follow-up I was pleased with, was, well, why do you think that narrative is there? We get that you don't think it's true, but why do you think it's there? And his answer was about change aversion, that because he wants to change the game, people inherently hate him. And this was, this was a moment in the story where, where I did directly step, step in and say, no, that's wrong. There are other moments in the story where I probably could have done that. I, I think I prefer at times to let the answers speak for themselves. So when Jerry Reinsdorf, the White Sox owner, says uh, there's, there's nothing Manfred's done in his control that could make uh, people like him more and, and people just don't like him because he's not Adam Silver or David Stern, personally, I think that's ridiculous. And Manfred's own words made that seem uh, ridiculous. But, you know, I, I didn't directly myself point out. But, but on that front, on why this question of, of his love has popped up, it's beyond just change. It's what people think they see and indeed see in both his actions, so what he's done as commissioner, and the way he portrays himself. So it's two buckets. It's, it's that it's, and they both feed into PR. They both feed into his image. They're, they're self-sustaining. Uh, it, it's really a study in, in, in question and reputation, but he obviously comes off as cold and, and steely and, and just out for the owners um, in both tracks, in both what he says and what he has pursued. And, and so whatever the issue has been, I think it can be tied back to that discussion. Yeah. Well, you you know, you, you get to this in the story, and I, I've always been struck over the years of like, you know, I think I've only really interviewed him one-on-one, maybe a few, like a handful of times, maybe just once or twice over the years. I, but I, I have attended a lot of, you know, the press conferences at the World Series and the All-Star Game and the, and the GM meetings and winter meetings. And, and I was always struck by the sort of 
contentiousness with which he picks apart questions, the way he is very... Lawyerly? Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and to his credit, he said he did not take that as an insult because he is a labor attorney. That is his skill. That is what allowed him to rise to the position he is. And it seems like in order to understand the way that he conducts himself in public, you have to understand his background in that field. Yeah, and high up in the story, that's that's why that point is made, that everything does stem from his career training. He started working in baseball in the late 80s as a labor lawyer. He is kind of quintessentially a lawyer. Uh, you know, uh, that, that that is who he represents. Now, you can be a lawyer and have a softer touch publicly and have a softer touch in how you answer questions. And... So an interesting exercise in evaluating him is, all right, so let's say he just said different things. Would the perception be the same? If he hadn't made the uh, piece of metal comment, which which obviously caused a lot of damage uh, and upset not just, you know, the fans, but players, uh, if... The other day, and I think it was in that Shaken interview at the LA Times, he he made a reference to (laughs) at, at the end of the season handing the trophy mm-hmm. to the owner. That would be the, the mark of a success. Some, some lucky yeah. owner, yeah. yeah and, that's and, 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 where I, and this is where I get a little... Um, personally, I don't really want someone who just says the right things because I think that, in effect, suckers people. I would rather have somebody who is telling me exactly what it is they are doing and or thinking. So in a, in a if you want to say, slightly perverse way, I actually appreciate Manfred more. Selig was great at standing up there a, yeah. and, and, and just, right. you know, waxing poetic about something in the 60s and giving you no substantive answer, but it was comforting and soothing to people. Um, yeah. But then you have the higher level discussion. Does the commissioner, who is the designated spokesperson for the entire sport, the person who's supposed to be the shield for the owners, should he be essentially better at PR? I, I think that's pretty clearly yes. That, 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 he would be more effective in delivering his message if he delivered that message differently. Yeah. I was talking to, uh, I was talking to an exec last week and he basically asked me, you know, why does it matter if fans think Rob Manfred doesn't like baseball? Right? Like he, he's the commissioner. He works for the owners. Like everyone knows this. We're all grownups. And, and I, I agree, agreed with this executive, uh, you know, sort of in, in theory, like, yes, we should all be grownups about this and appreciate, you know, what his job actually is. But at the same time, <clears throat> and especially in this current sort of scenario, like fans are just so beaten down and demoralized by just the sort of contours of American life that it's doubly frustrating if it seems like the sport that you're invested in, the person who's running it, you know, can sort of like cheapen the World Series trophy or say that, you know, the sign of success would be, you know, handing this piece of metal to a billionaire. I I can understand why that is very upsetting to fans who want to feel emotionally invested in this product. Yeah, and this was the end of the story, and and I I think it might have actually worked well saving it for the end, but prior to establishing everything else before diving into that discussion of, okay, so what is this guy's job actually? And, And that discussion isn't meant to be kind of a blanket defense of anything he does. But if Selig was liable to pretend, you know, Man- Manfred said to me, and I don't, I don't think it's the first time, I can't remember if he said it before, but the Major League Agreement makes me the CEO of Major League Baseball. So there is part of, of the public perception, the consideration of Manfred that is tied to a standard and, and a desire that people have for what that job should be. So if you're going to examine Manfred, you have to then examine, well, is that, what is that standard? How did it develop? Is it accurate? And one person who uh, I spoke to on this pointed out, and in the story it's pointed out, that there, there truly has not been a commissioner who has actually ruled with impunity since Judge Landis, since literally the first commissioner. Faye Vincent tr- tried to, didn't work out so well. It, it was not allowed to. So... On one level, Manfred is simply more unapologetically living out that role. He's, without this soft touch in this veneer, he has a harder time selling people on the notion that he's there to protect 
the game. And and uh, as a lawyer, you know, he points out that he thinks it's his job to pr- protect both the integrity. And uh, but I say as a lawyer because, yeah, it is his job to protect both. The ultimate question is when push comes to shove, which one are you prioritizing? So when people talk about his love for the game, they can be talking about many, many, many different things. But one thing I think they are they are trying to say is, well, do you put the game ahead of the owner's business interests and quite clearly in the majority of instances that answer is no and then the question becomes well did other commissioners objectively do that um and this is why you need literally a book length piece to examine that because you know i I just didn't have time to to try to break down the the positions of the other commissioners i'll be honest i'm i am kind of tired of the looking at this guy from this perspective of PR versus reality, I think we can all agree that he can be better front-facing. There was something else in there that really jumped out to me. And this is a quote, I think it was from uh, uh, a former executive, didn't name him in the story. And it reads in part that Manfred has a, quote, difficult time dealing with people who don't think like him. That feels like a pretty damning statement for a CEO. Did Manfred have any response to that? Because that seems to me, of all the things that got raised in there, the biggest weakness beyond PR that I see from this guy. What did he say about that? So that question was not directly presented to Manfred in the interview. It was not. I didn't have that interview done at that point in time. Uh, So... And that's one of those instances where you wish, like I was saying earlier, if I had a second interview, one of the things that, that I would have done would have been to have attempted to bring all those specific, um, really pointed things to him. And, and that's not to say the interview did not have some, uh, but you know, it, it, this was a, a long reporting process. So I didn't get a, a chance to ask him that question. I wish I had. Um, the league office will always, I mean, look, any kind of body that you're covering when, when you have former employee quotes is going to bristle. That's just what's going to happen. People don't like anonymous quotes. The reality is that they're, it's not, it's, you can't really get to it otherwise. You know, this isn't a situation where there's readily a stock of people who have had the experience of working with him directly uh, who were comfortable going on the record about it. I wish they were, but you, you have to understand the reality of how small those circles are. And, you know, that person gave a threefold criticism that the way Manfred built his brain trust gave him three blind spots, uh, diversity, a, a variety of professional career tracks, and, and the willingness of people around him to challenge him. And, and part of, and this wasn't directly in the story, but I'll, I'll elaborate in the podcast. One of the elements of it with the, the willingness to challenge him is tied somewhat to that general disposition. So that, that kind of easily irked figure that we see, you know, it's the same thing uh, behind, behind, you know, he's not an easy guy to walk into his office and deliver bad news to without going to the extreme of saying, um, you know, he flies off the handle at anything, uh, taking it to the extreme. It, it's this, what you see is in a way what you get, even if you are working with him. Um, but look, the people he put around him, a lot of lawyers, a lot of white men. So were there people who clearly thought differently than him? This person, who, who was a former league executive, felt the, the answer was no, that that was not something Manford prioritized. Seems like a giant weakness to me. I mean, there has to be at least an acknowledgement on his part I would think that that's probably something that goes beyond PR. No, I mean, because this really, and you use the word, ties into diversity. It just doesn't seem like there's any value placed on that. Like, uh, you know, you, you get into it, but like, uh, what is your takeaway from his thought on diversity and what value or, val- or, or not value that it brings to the table? Because frankly, I look at it and, and it seems to me like he doesn't have any um, sense of value for that whatsoever. Yeah, the executive said, I don't think he's a racist. I just don't think he cared. And so it goes back to, 
a question of what you miss in your priorities. What, how broad is your field of vision? That's one of the other themes that's in here uh, across the board. When, when Manfred is pursuing changes with the union, how, you know, does he see the forest for the trees? Did he see the forest for the trees when he put together his leadership group? Did he see what was lacking? And this executive absolutely thought that he wouldn't, that he wouldn't look around and, and you know, go to bed at night after restructuring the major league office uh, and consider that everybody looks like me. It, it, and the league is already, and Manfred has already admitted their mistake in so much as they just, in August alone, made a couple internal moves in an attempt to make that inner circle less homogenous. They hired Mich- uh, Michelle Meyer Ship, who is now directly reports to Manfred, will head up HR, inclusion, diversity efforts at the league office. They promoted Tony Regans, who's a black man who is now chief baseball development officer. So in a way, they, they, they saw the criticism that, that popped up in, in June and July and immediately reacted to it. But that doesn't defeat a question of that's what it took to get you there? But was Why it, didn't you see this ahead of time? And, and also, Tony Petiti, who was one of Rob's right-hand men, literally a deputy commissioner who ran MLB Network and marketing funneled up to him, you know, you know, kind of an integral behind-the-scenes figure. He left in August to go to Blizzard, which makes World of Warcraft and Diablo and all these interesting Star, StarCraft, all these games that I played as a kid. Anyway, um, he left. I, I played Warcraft, too. <laughs> exactly. Warcraft comma two or Warcraft the numeral two. Anyway, um, he left and he was replaced by two internal uh, people who are already in place. Two white men who are already inside the inner circle in Chris Marinak and Noah Garden. So, you know, that was another opportunity where they could have gone outside and made sure that uh, or, or, you know, tried to find someone who was a different thinker, was of a different background, different color, whatever you want to um, say and they didn't do that so you know they, they, they took one step did they take as many steps as they should are they going to continue to take the steps you know th- that the story is yet to be told on that front and, re- and to be fair Regan is already working in the, in the league office correct correct and he was working in that uh, funnel that, that he was in they, they, did, they did give him a promotion you know a lot of this stems a lot of the discussion around this stems back to a snapshot of that league office in in June because on the, they have a website mlb.com and on mlb.com they have an executives page and if you looked at it in June it was just, it was all white men that's that's the only people who were listed and so you know, Regan's gets the promotion now he's listed there there's a white woman Laura Patara Wish uh, who did not get a promotion in the last couple of months who's now listed um, and obviously the addition of, of Michelle Meyer Ship so. There's some changes. If you want to draw a positive, you can say it, it, it seems like they're taking the message to heart to some degree. But again, it goes back to do, do you give credit for something uh, after the fact or, or in, in the, the league of jo- Jackie Robinson, the, the social institution that Bud Selig always refers to, shouldn't you be out in front? Shouldn't you be setting the, the example for the NBA, for, for the broader Consume, baseball consuming world um, and I, I think objectively baseball often is not that baseball seems to follow and react rather than proactively make itself the leader in this field it's not as simple as making a couple promotions and that just solves the problem I mean you you need to have like I I think there also needs to be you know like a, a a greater consideration for what the future of the sport is going to look like and not how it's going to affect the owners financially. I mean, I just I look at some of the decisions that have been made with regard to the minors and the draft and they're just baffling. Like I that those seem just so strange, I guess, in that the in that the amount of money saved versus the what they're giving up seems pretty significant. The, so last year, this quote didn't make it in. Um, maybe it should have. But I talked to Seelig for his book uh, when he, when he put out his book, which was coincidentally called "For the Good of the Game." Whether he actually lived that, I don't know. 
there was a quote in there about we were talking about the job of wrangling the owners and and he said whether whether he he lived it again debatable but what he said was you know it's got to be in, in the greater interest of the sport not just short-term benefits and and so what that's what you're pointing to here is whether or not the league is too aggressively pursuing short-term efficiency gains in the draft uh in in the cutting of minor league teams and the minor league discussion comes up very early in the story because I do think it encapsulates everything it, it, as, as far as the perception of Manfred. I, I, arguably, I don't think anything that's happened has worsened his image more than the, the minor leagues because he was literally taking on small-town America. You had presidential candidates speaking out against this. Right? I think Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders both had commentary on it back in the spring. Or, 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 or late winter. There are some goals that they are trying to achieve in there that are ostensibly reasonable because it is a very old system. There is a lot of inefficiency. And, a, and the fight between the minor leagues and the major leagues is, is complicated, unsurprisingly, by money. Who pays for the facility upgrades? Um, things of that nature. But the way they completely lost control of the messaging on it they, you know, to go to the, I don't think it's a stretch to call it an extreme to say we're going to cut 40 teams, even if some of these teams are going to live on uh, outside of the traditional umbrella, which is what MLB says, right? We're cutting them, but they're not, not necessarily going to die. And then the argument becomes, well, is that true? You know, can they, can these teams survive outside of it? Um, you know, that, that was a major misstep. And, and you know, you, you started the question off by, by, still talking about diversity and, and you, this is what I'm saying. You could, you could explore each one of these issues, minor leagues, diversity to such a great length that it is hard to walk away um, feeling like you absolutely touched on every point you need to touch on because there is a lot more to diversity. Front office hiring. Manfred acknowledges they need to redouble their efforts. Look at every baseball operations group across the league, like literally every single one. You know, even the ones that have people of color in leadership spots, does that trickle down to the lower levels of um, the front offices? You know, I, it, it deserves its own story, and it's frankly a story that I'm hoping to do further. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's you know, diversity of ethnicity is essential and, you know, sort of needs to be improved. I also think just diversity of class, like diversity of background, like where, like not just having people from elite institutions making these decisions. I think there's value. And I think, you know, you're talking about like taking on small town America. I think there would probably be uh, some benefit from having folks who, you know, who have are a little more acquainted with, you know, that sort of situation, uh, you know, being more involved in these discussions. Yeah, right. It goes, it goes back to the construction. It goes back to a question of blind spots in, in a variety of ways for Manfred. Does he realize how people are going to perceive him? And does he realize what he misses? Did he realize he didn't have somebody in his, in his front office, in his, in his baseball operations group, to tell him, like, hey, the videos the, with the you know, instant replay, the, the players might be using that to do something you don't want them to do, right? And, and they, hired, they hired people in, I think it was February, to do more of that. You know, they hired Nick Hundley and Gregor Blanco. Yeah. They, 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 right, and having Chris Young, I think, in that in the in that disciplinary role, guy who is you know very very sharp, and is half Joe Torre's age, like yes, but but also was playing baseball a couple years ago, and is a you know one of the you know like more uh, has is is someone who is seen around the industry, as someone with incredibly high integrity. Putting a person like that in that role, I think that was a really smart move. Um, but it's not. But that doesn't solve everything. It's not like a one. You know, one good hire doesn't fix the problem. No, I agree with that. I would never uh, suggest it would. Evan, um, you know, Bud Seeley was an owner. Obviously, he had worked in various parts of the game on the club side, right? Like he'd he'd see because he was an owner, he saw uh, a lot of things, and so then when he became a commissioner or the commissioner, he had all these relationships built in, and he was ultimately one of them. Rob Manfred will never be one of them. How much do you think his actions are a, ref a reflection of the fact 
that he's never going to be able to operate in the same way as Bud from that same level of having been a peer before and all the things that come with that. That sentiment is largely out there. Seelig in that interview for his book made a reference, and this quote is in the story, to some power arriving with him and leaving with him. That, that, that there's just a difference in what basically the cachet Rob has compared to Bud. And, and that, that, that's, it's not a new notion. Um, what we never know, at least only in, in bits and pieces and drips and drabs, is the strategy Manfred is employing with the owner. So there, there's a lot of speculation inside the industry from prominent people. Uh, you know, why did this summer unfold the way it did? You know, did, did Manfred draw something out of stalling? Was he able to then turn to his owners and say, this is all I can do, and he had already vilified the union publicly, so he had an easy scapegoat, as opposed to it you know, being on his shoulders. But if you have the different factions of ownerships, of ownership, his own strategy in dealing with that is rarely revealed. It's just, you know, Lords of the Realm got to it, and that uh, that book is runs up through what ninety three, ninety four. I mean, it, it, it's it, it's it's a very hard area to understand. I try, um, but there's there's no question that that, that by not being an owner, it, it impacts him. I want to I want to talk about that because this is something that Mark and I have talked about a lot. I think you know, just like when we're trying to come up with story ideas or thinking about covering the sport, and it's something that you know you have tried really hard at and had some success at. Like, why is it so difficult for us as reporters to write about owners? Can you explain all the levels of interference that happen when you try and? write about what the owner is thinking or what the owner's doing, like the levels of protection and interference that they create? My, my first thought is that it, it's just such a small group, so it is very difficult to find somebody who actu- actually has first-hand knowledge of what they are thinking, that you're, you are forced to work off of inferences and speculation on most occasions. It's, as far as you know, kind of them running interference... You know, certainly as a beat writer, uh, they they can, you know, if you're if you're under their, uh, you know, they can exert all sorts of pressure, right? PR staffs, the owners themselves. There's no question they can and and they do do that. I, I live that with Jim Crane. Um, I don't know if 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 you mean beyond that though, but it, to me, it's simply that it, it's this is not a circle of laymen. This is not a group that you can often find people who have firsthand ongoing knowledge of what these thought processes are. And even if you do, and there because there are some ownership figures who do speak, then you have to parse, is this true? Are you giving me a rosy picture? Would you tell me? Would you go against, you know, it's, it's with the Republican Senate go against Trump. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of dynamic of, 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 self-protection mm-hmm. yeah i mean i guess it, it it differs from organization to organization i mean you know the the dodgers owner uh, mark walter i don't know the last time he spoke publicly about the team versus you know uh hal steinbrenner talks what once or twice a year mark and he's usually pretty polished he will say a couple things that kind of make news but don't don't really make waves and and that's oftentimes about it. the yes right like it's it's the uh, in-house network so you're, he's not going to be taking fastballs up and in you know as far as the questions like i i guess to kind of play off of this cuz these are all great points about the owners baseball's being played in a pandemic why hasn't rob manfred given a press conference well, why does he have to? Well, it is, uh, you got a sport being played right now at the height of this. So I think that's newsworthy to have even well, done it once. I'm, okay, not, I'm not suggesting he does it every week, okay, or every day. Let me reframe. Let me reframe. Who can exert pressure on him? To yeah, do I, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, the only people that can exert pressure on him would be media figures who have written this and and have put it out there. But 
again, all that aside, I'm just curious why he hasn't done it. I mean, from from Evan's view, because you've talked to him, you, you know the lay of the land. Is it really a calculation, as Andy's implying there, of, well, no one's making me do it, so I'm not gonna? Because if it's that simple, then great. And maybe it is. Reading the story, he could totally think that, and I, w- I would buy that. But what is your sense as to why he has not taken questions from a group of people covering the sport when it is being contested at the height of a pandemic? I haven't directly asked this question, but the way the league will sometimes defend itself with, with decisions is they'll say, well, this is what the other sports are doing. This, this is an issue that the rest of corporate America faces. This is what they're doing. So whereas you, you guys, or, or, or you in this case, Mark, are approaching it from a lens of simply, well, what is the right thing to do? Uh, you know, it, would it be to put yourself out there? And the league at this point would probably say, look, we provided Rob to you, Evan Drellick. We provided Rob to you, Bill Shaken. We provided Rob to Time Magazine. There was an interview with Time last week. So, you know, that they can hide behind that uh, to some degree. I don't think their calculus is simply, well, what is the right thing to do? It is, it is, what, is what are the standards of business? And that, that's true in a lot of different facets here. It, 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 it's not, and I, I, even going back to diversity, I, I, again, I don't think the question they're asking themselves at the end of the day is always, um, how should we be the pioneer? How can we be the most righteous in whatever we're talking about, whether it's a tiny issue, a relatively tiny issue of, is he available publicly or something much broader? Um, so I, I, has Goodell or Silver done it? And if not, I'm sure they would say, well, if they haven't done it, then what? Then, you know, we, don't, we don't necessarily. And, and, to, and, and this is where it gets complicated. You can credit Manfred, and I did in the story, because he is more publicly available than Roger Goodell. Does that mean he is ultimately publicly available enough? Different question. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's important. It, Manfred, at the very least in the last couple weeks, has been doing, has been talking more. Um, and, you know, uh, Evan is generally considered the most irritating man in the business. So it's not like he was asking soft And very pro-management, uh, by the Bill way. Sh- my reputation pre- precedes me Yeah, very me pro-management. Yes, yes. You've, you've been often called a, a tool of the commissioner's office. The hand, they handed uh, me a know, World Bill Series. Bill Shaken from the LA Houston, Times yeah. is a... Bill Shaken from the LA Times is a, you know, ferocious reporter. You know, Tyler Kepner is one of the best in the business. Like, so he's, it's not like he's just talking to rights holders. It's not like he's, you know, just like taking softballs. But, you know, I, to, to Mark's point, why hasn't he done a press conference? Well, who's going to pressure him to do it? Are we all going to go on Twitter every day and, you know, tweet in all caps, where's Rob, you know, or like do your press conference. Like at some point, right, we have to react to uh, both, you know, the news of the moment and the interests of readers. Like I don't know if readers necessarily want to hear us complain about how he hasn't spoken yet or how no, he hasn't done I think done readers would like to conference. hear what the commissioner of the sport has to say about questions that are brought to have his attention. Have you talked to readers? <laughs> well, not in a while. We, we're all Have you looked at the comment section? Have you ever write about oh, like the state of the not. game? No, <laughs> you know, the comments, comments on this one are. are yeah, you know what? Uh, yeah, no. Well, people but, are angry. It's really? miserable. It's miserable living in they America are? right now. It's miserable. <laughs> people are I upset. Su- <laughs> I suggested that baseball might be better at seven innings, and I feel like there is like a mob that gathered in front of the house the next morning. It's not good. <laughs> I just, I guess, what I'm saying is that. You know, the commissioners of the sports, the, you know, the, the, the powerful people in, you know, sports and in this country writ large, like, are able to exist outside of, you know, the structures of accountability that we have set up, you know, to cover baseball. Unlike, you know, the manager of the, you know, Miami Marlins, Rob Manfred does not have to speak to the media twice a day. And there's no real structures in place to change No, and, 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 it's, and it goes back to this, this story, again, it, it, it was such a... A massive amount of micro decisions. You know, somebody. You could argue that 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 the moment, the situation requires much more vitriol. That that that. um, Well, what does Manfred do? He represents billionaires, and 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 today, you know, as the billionaire class gets richer. So so the the approach to Manfred. In the approach to his position, um, 
includes a lot of calculuses and, and also probably ultimately reflections of personal, frankly, politics. I, I don't know, or, 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 or just personal outlook uh, on things. And, and yeah, sound, maybe, I should, maybe, maybe I should do this as my next book. That, that's, that's, maybe that's what I'm gearing up towards here. What insights do you think you gained on, on those fronts, by the way? Like, what, what is his personal outlook, judging from the reporting that you pulled out here? Refine the question for me. What do you, in which way? Well, I, I think... I think, I think he looks at himself as a man it. with a job to do. I asked for the, I asked for the clarity, okay. and then I just jumped in. Um, yeah, well, I'm glad, because that's what I'm after here. Like, what... I guess it's really a question of of self-identity, how you perceive oneself. And, and, and that makes sense, is if that's how he sees himself, right? I mean, is there, is there anything more to it? Is, he, is, it, is it that simple? He's a man that's got a job to do and he's gonna go do it. You know, this, this question of passion, can't, this isn't in the story. It, it might be good for a future story, but I'll, I'll, we can work it in here. Why not? Uh, if somebody who listens this long, sure. Here's a, here's a, a tiny nugget. So one person who worked with him um, felt that it was nuts that people would question his, his passion. Another person thought that that was a, actually a fair thing to do because, indeed, he would not so readily talk about the games going on as Seelig would. Uh, and, and so my follow-up question to that person was, so then what is his passion? And what this person said, and, and I didn't get a chance to ask Rob this, um, is golf, beer, and his kids. That that's, what, that's, that's where Manfred's heart lies. Uh, or his passion lies, right? And and I, I personally think it's impossible that he could not love baseball. Whether he expresses that love for baseball, different question. I, 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 Frank, that's the most lovable thing I've ever heard about right. the guy. Um, so, you know, I, you're basically asking: is there is there a, is there a great depth to him behind the scenes that, that we're not aware of? Uh, I'm sure there is some, uh, and it would be interesting to hear him expand a little bit on himself beyond baseball. Jerry Krasick did an interesting piece when he got the job in 2015 talking about his background. You know, he's from a small town in New York. Uh, his father worked for management as well. Um, so it's kind of a, kind of a family uh, uh, career track at this point. Journalistically, if we step back, if I did a story or anybody did a story asking Manfred about his interests outside of baseball, it would be perceived as fawning, even if it could actually be somewhat interesting or revelatory. Uh, to, to, to write about that on its own in, in this climate because people, you know, people just hate the guy. And I'm not saying they shouldn't, but it, it, it creates little interest in that kind of discussion. Somebody was asking me yesterday, so what do the owners think? And what I found in my you know, almost 33 years on this earth and my whatever 12 years doing sports writing is that what you see is what other people see. They're, they're making him money. He's made some mistakes. I, 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 don't, I don't know how else you could see it differently. That he's a lawyerly guy who doesn't always have the right touch and, and might pursue objectively the wrong thing sometimes. I guess you didn't need 6,200 words for that. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you just come on this podcast? I told you I should be the third. Save everyone. You, if, we, if we ever expand to a third mic, you're our guy. You, you pretty sure. much are, dude. You're two-time champ. Like, that's yeah. pretty much a third mic, Drell. Just, you know, it could be like a character actor just in the background chiming. I don't have to be so prominent <laughs> yeah. in every episode. I could just be kind of like, you know, the, the peanut gallery. Yeah. A little bit of hey, Drell, self-deprecating That's, the, that's the third mic, yeah. Right. Like, no, mm -hmm. pe the folks can't see this, obviously, but tell us about this typewriter behind you. Is that eyewash? Have you actually ever oh, used no. it? Can you operate... The typewriter is it? Yeah, it is functional. I bought it from somebody who has written a book on typewriters. There's a little shop on Long Island. Uh, I think last summer I was just in an emotional state and felt I wanted a typewriter. Uh, so it it costs too much money because you can get these things very cheaply, but but it also is in very good condition and and works without me having to do anything. And uh, like I think the guy who the, the, I know the guy who sold it to me sold one to um, oh man, what's his name? Uh, Tom um, Tom Hanks. Uh, who's who's a big typewriter fan? Yeah, I was gonna say Tom Hanks is like. Didn't Tom Hanks? No, I think he wrote a whole book where every story was about clocks. Like t Tom Hanks is like into like clocks and trains and typewriters. Yeah, v v vintage mechanical stuff or kindred spirits there. Yeah, yeah. yeah Interesting. <laughs> have you? So you've used this typewriter, Evan? Not as frequently as I should. I I have used it. Um, 
my grandma would probably appreciate a, le- a letter. Uh, I should. I can send you oh. one, Mark. I used to send a lot of mail when I was a beat writer on the would road you please, all the time. Have you? Because have you have you ever uh, used a typewriter with a pack a soft pack of Lucky Strikes rolled up in your sleeve? <laughs> are Lucky Strikes available in America? I, they were back in the day. I, I went through a phase. Uh, I feel like I've only was, seen them in fun. Europe. Not that I was looking. <laughs> uh, I think if you use that typewriter, you have to write like George King. <laughs> just, <laughs> just banging away. E- That's actually e- yeah. P George period. used that when he was covering covering Mickey Mantle. P, P period, U period, you grass. <laughs> I thought about being being period, being enough of a tool to like bring yeah, it to the press box good. one day. You know, with uh, uh, that oh, would love that. That would be as tired. I'm as not going to do it. I'm not going to get. But I, I would appreciate that. That would also you'd have to go to a game, which like wow. when is that? Let me ask. I'll ask you this real quick. Do you think I should make sure I get to a game this season? You know, we're How, still sort. No, okay. no. Why? Well, for the novelty no, of seeing, like, like in, in a pandemic environment, can we say that it is worth it to just say, "Yeah, I saw what it was like without people in the stands." I'm not really into uh, quote unquote having experiences, and that's anything. and that's what that's I've settled really on as well. My driving. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have to yeah. say that I come down the issue the same way as uh, McCullough there. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's we're still path. sorting. We're still sorting out, I guess. You know what's the right thing to do for the for the postseason in terms of travel, and you know if there's because like the, uh, you know Mark and I and uh, oh I see you know and just sort of are are these things bubbles? Okay, How, what does that mean? Does that mean there's going to be access like there is in the NBA, or is it going to be like the NHL? No, but if you don't show up, you're not a good access. ball rider. You're not really taking in the whole scene. Yeah, I mean, oh, let's not even start with this bullshit. Yeah, oh I mean, God. eyewash is, uh, you know, eyewash isn't really funny when it's in a pandemic. It really you isn't. Know? It's like it's We're actually crossing state it's actually, line. Yeah, it's actually very, uh, you know, it's, it can be quite unsafe. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. Well, eyewash is a pandemic. Hero for me. That's great. I like that line. Yeah. Well, Evan, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Everyone should go to our site and check out his story. It's uh, really worth your time. Uh, do you have anything else you want to plug or any uh, anything else you're working on? Uh, no. No. I'll, we'll talk about it next time. And listen, when Andy says take some time, he really means take some time. That shit's 6,200 words, so it don't read itself. It it's only reads it. like it reads like seven thousand. It's all right. <laughs> thanks, Andy. Thanks, Mark. Hey, thanks for coming on. This is fun. <laughs> thanks, Drells. Thanks again for listening. If you are not a subscriber to the Athletic, please go to theathletic.com slash beyond the scrum and get forty percent off a one year subscription. It's a good site. You'll probably like it. Have a good one.